Hello, and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with books that we read as kids and have moved on from there. If you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram we are eventhetrunchbull. And this week, the theme that we have for you is... Don't mess with the pasta magic. That's right, we've got two stories which involve comically disastrous events concerning incorrectly deployed magic spells and pasta, and they're both about young men called Antony, or Antonio Donino. Oh yeah, so it is. Yeah, <laughs> I unclocked that. Our picture book is Streganona by Tommy De Paula. And returning for the second time in a season is Diana Wynne-Jones, this Yay. time the Magicians of Caprona. We're both big Diana Wynne-Jones fans. Shall we start with Strega Nona, Matt? Do you want to tell us about it? Yes, absolutely. So, Strega Nona, as our theme suggests, is a story about pasta and magic. So, we have Big Anthony, who lives with Strega Nona, which I think translates as witch grandmother. Yeah. And everyone in the town is sort of a bit wary of Strigonona, but kind of goes to her for all of their needs anyway, like she mends things and... Fixes headaches. Yeah, does people little spells. So she's kind of like the classic witch figure, I guess, of like integral part of society kept very much at an arm's distance. And she sort of takes Big Anthony in... And says, you can stay here, you can sleep here, you can, you know, live here. You just do some work and chores for me. And he's like, yeah, great. And she's like, oh, just one thing. Don't ever touch the pasta pot. And he's like, yeah, cool, no bother. (laughs) And that's fine. I mean, already we can tell where this is going. Yeah. We We never have to worry about spoilers so much with the picture books, do we? Because, like, (laughs) so... uh, He's not bothered about the pasta pot until he sees Strigonona using it and she just, she asks it. She says, Bubble, bubble, pasta pot. Boil me some pasta nice and hot. I'm hungry and it's time to sup. Boil enough pasta to fill me up. That's it. That's what she says. It's got a nice bouncy little rhythm. And she says that and then pasta just starts appearing. The, The pot bubbles and boils up and produces pasta that wasn't there before. And it starts to kind of overflow at the pan. And then she says, she's basically just like, cheers, that'll do. That's enough pasta. Thanks, pot. And then she blows the pot three kisses. That's how you stop it from making more. So there's magic words. You basically ask nicely and you blow it three kisses and it stops. And Big Anthony's like, wow, that's amazing. What a cool pasta pot. And he goes and tells everyone in the town. But he doesn't see the three kisses. So we can tell what's going to happen now. So he goes and tells everyone in the town, and they're like, what a ridiculous story, but maybe you should investigate more and get us some pasta. (laughs) So he waits for his opportunity. A few days later, Streganona goes out. Uh, She's like, you know, keep the house to yourself. Don't mind what you do. Make yourself at home. Remember, don't touch the pasta pot. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But this is his chance. So (laughs) he runs in. He's like, right, uh, pot. (laughs) Listen up, 
Bubble, bubble, pasta pot. Boil me some pasta nice and hot. I'm hungry and it's time to sup. Boil enough pasta to fill me up. Pasta starts appearing from the pot. Bubbles up, boils, loads of pasta appearing. He runs to the town and goes, Pasta for everyone at Strigonona's. And they all like go, what a ridiculous young man. But they grab the pots and pans anyway. And they race up to Strigonona's. And it's great. He's feeding everyone pasta. And then like when everyone's had enough pasta, he goes, cheers pot. Thanks, that'll do for pasta now. Enough, enough, pasta pot. I have my pasta nice and hot. So simmer down my pot of clay until I'm hungry another day. All right, stop, pot. <coughs> stop with the... Please stop. Stop with the pasta. Stop. No, so much pasta. And he doesn't blow it three kisses, right? So it just keeps... It keeps making pasta. And it fills up the entire house with pasta. And then it's filling up the village with pasta. If someone hadn't dragged Big Anthony out of the way, he'd have been drowned in pasta. It's an absolute pasta nightmare, right? No one knows what to do. Streganona comes home straight away. She's like, I can see what's happened to you. You've you've been playing with the pasta part, haven't you? <laughs> um, so she goes and blows it three kisses. And it stops making pasta. Doesn't get rid of the pasta, right? Turns out that's Anthony's job. So what we essentially have here at the ending, fittingly for our podcast, is basically the same as the bit in Matilda where Bruce Bogtrotter has to eat all of the cake. (laughs) Except as you pointed out, Nina, we're kind of we're on Streganona's side. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not it's not the kind of like, yeah, go Bruce, stick it to the man kind of (laughs) It's like, you messed up. You're going to eat a lot of pasta. She's she's basically like, no harm done, except like, I'd quite like to sleep in my own bed tonight. So You can start there. You wanted pasta, you got pasta, get eating. To the point where like, I mean, it's, you know, it's fun and it's a picture, but kind of feels like torture to me. Like the picture at the end of him, like slumped against, I mean, we're talking like a, a small town's worth of pasta. That's a lot of carbs, right? And his stomach is all like distended, distended, and <laughs> and she's just sleeping in her bed. Like, cheers, Anthony. He's like, oh my god, I think I'm gonna die. Yeah, he's okay though. There are a lot of sequels to this. Tommy DePaolo wrote lots of Streganona books. <laughs> Big Anthony is fine. Did he? Oh, that's good. That's great. I'm glad. I'm glad. So Tommy DePaolo's Italian American. So this is based on stories that his mother told him when he was small, although he's Italianized it. It was originally the magic porridge pot. So he started writing picture books in like 1960-something, um, and there was a great appetite among librarians for folk tales. So okay. that's why he came up with Streganona, and it was so wildly popular that there's a whole bunch of Streganona books. There's like Streganona's childhood. There's Streganona's magic spells. He also did a lot of books about saints. Okay. The Legend of the Bifana has got angels in it. The Clown of God is another one. The Clown of God? Yeah, it, it's really good, actually. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Tommy DePaolo almost became a monk when he was a young man. Right. He went and actually lived with Benedictine monks for a while, Ooh. with whom he stayed friends his whole life. He was very drawn to the religious life, but he was also drawn to the artist's life. And he thought, if I'm a monk, I'll be dividing my priorities between God and the drawing. So I'm going to do the drawing. 
and just be a good Catholic. Fair enough. Yeah. No, there's a there's a strong um, Catholic thing going on in well, this. Well, the role there? of the nuns within the city is what I noticed. Yeah, they're quite a big part yeah, of public definitely. life, and they take part. I mean, yeah. they show up with forks to come and eat the pasta. Um, and I think they sort of there's a there's an uneasy thing between the nuns and Strega Nona as well. This is a banned book, you know. This is on the banned book list in some U.S. libraries because really? of the witchcraft. How weird, man. Yeah. Come on. She's not like... It's not like she's using witchcraft to, like, murder children. That What are they like, them pesky witches? <laughs> coming over here, making us feel better. <laughs> giving us remedies for our ills. Yeah. Um, yeah. This felt like quite a Catholic book to me, I suppose. And I quite like it because in the second book we're going to do today, it's a depiction of... Italian Catholics by a British atheist. And I don't think she does a bad job. I think it's quite good, but I also like that this is sort of by the community that this is about. In terms of um, fat representation, I think Strega Nona is great. She's sort of fat and old and bent over with a big nose and a big chin. I mean, she's quite a caricature, I guess, of witchiness. Yeah, but she's just lovely and jolly, isn't she? You can, I can imagine her being very, very practical. Mm. She shows up and sees the pasta. It's it just be like, right, okay, that's what's happened. You're an idiot. Let's sort this out. Yeah. No, I'm done. Yeah, no, she's great. She's big on personal responsibility, isn't she? Like, you break it, you fix it. Yeah, like maybe to a unreasonable extent, <laughs> yes. I would say. <laughs> um, doesn't she just take a fork off a passing person and hand it to Big Anthony and be like, "Have at it. Here's your yeah. fork." <laughs> It's very well drawn. Let's talk about the illustration style. Because you get all that character sense just from how Strigonona's drawn. Yeah. And I think similarly with Anthony, he's a simple lad, yes. isn't he? And I think you get that. He's just like, he's tall and big and bumbling and like proper lovely and friendly. Mm. It's a really strong sense of place for me in this book. Like the sort of architecture there is and the way that it's almost like medieval perspective, isn't it? It's like people aren't smaller when they're far away. Things are just sort of stacked on top of each other. Oh, yeah. I see, yeah, no, I see what you mean completely. It's that kind of tapestry, like bio-tapestry-esque drawing where everyone's 2D and like side-on and the yeah. same size as the mountains behind them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I really like the style. The perspective changes all the time. Like once the house is filled up with pasta, like Big Anthony is taller than the house. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's great about kids' books, isn't it? Like, we yeah. talked about this before when we did Patton's Pumpkin, like, kids' books with illustrations that are proper, like, skillfully well done, but also keep that kind of thing of, like, look like they could have been done by kids. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very sort of naive. Yeah. Like, I was reading this fun interview with Tommy DePaola. And so he started working in the 1960s. He said it was very difficult to get um, books published in colour. And so usually you had black. And then you had maybe black and one colour, or if you were lucky and there was like a big budget, maybe black and two colours. And so he was right. always getting children writing in being like, you've not finished colouring this in. <laughs> I've done it for you, look. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. That's great. That's exactly what you want. What age of children's this book format? As you say, the pictures are so expressive. So I think it's one of those that could start like proper young. Mm-hmm. Um, probably goes up to like six, seven. I'd, I'd say it probably kind of goes up to like 
right up to before you're moving on to more wordy books. Yeah, yeah. It could also be one of the first books someone reads by themselves because the vocabulary really isn't very big. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite the cat sat on the mat. It's one up from that. But it is only one up from that. Like, I could see this being one of the first books somebody reads aloud to their parent or guardian to show that they can do it. Okay, cool. Should we move on then? Yeah. Fab. So, next up, we have The Return of Diana Wynne-Jones with The Magicians of Caprona, which is the second book in the Crestomancy series. Yes. doesn't really seem to matter whether you read those in order. It doesn't really, no. So, do you want to tell us what Magicians of Caprona is about, Nina? Yeah. So, Magicians of Caprona is a rip-off of Romeo and Juliet. It's fairly reductive, (laughs) but yeah. This is the first thing I like about it, though. I'm a sucker for a Shakespeare retelling. I love it. This is an alternative universe thing, which Cretomancy does a lot. In this alternative universe, Italy is still a collection of city-states. It is not a unified country. So Caprona is a city-state surrounded by the city-states of Pisa, Siena, and Genoa. The best spells in the world come from Caprona. And the best spells in Caprona come from these two warring families. The Montanas that live on one side of town in a big house... And the Petrocchis live on the other side of the town in a big house. The big houses are almost identical. As are the families, right? They're just they're just complete mirrors of each other. Our hero is Tonino Montana, who is a young boy of the Casa Montana. Um, and he is not very good at spells. And he's quite self-conscious about that. He's good at other stuff. He reads lots of books. And importantly, he can speak to cats, which in this book is very important because magic works better around cats. Yeah. And the Casa Montana, at least, is full of cats. There's just loads of them everywhere. Mm. Caprona is covered in these little, like, pins to say, like, who did the spell on this? They're cherry red and leaf green. Leaf green for the Casa Montana and cherry red for the Casa Petrocchi. And everything in the city is protected by spells from one or the other of the family. There's spells in the foundations of the old bridge and the new bridge to stop it being swept away when the river gets big and fierce. But in the background, there are rumblings of a war coming. Farmlands around the city are getting encroached on by Mm -hmm. Siena and Pisa and Genoa. And every year, they're sort of getting encroached on a little bit more. It feels like soon they're going to properly declare war. Yeah. The virtue of Caprona, which is kind of upheld by the magic, is deteriorating. And one of the first signs of this is that the spells holding up the old bridge break. And they've got both families with like teams of people there putting new spells on. And they're just kind of breaking as fast as they can make them. Yeah. Whilst like all of these other city-states are gearing up for war. And it's kind of the two things together is like... Mm. So the bridge is like the canary in the mine. It's the first thing to show cracks. And so the Duke summons representatives from both houses, Montana and Petrocchi, and tasks them with finding the words to the Angel of Caprona. The Angel of Caprona is a hymn that is sung in every school in Caprona and the tune that most best spells are set to. And they've got like sort of some made up words for it in Italian. That um, they sort of think are close enough, but the words in Latin have been lost. Yeah, it's sort of it's still the most powerful spell tune. Yeah, because all spells are sung, aren't they? Yes, and it's still the most powerful tune that you can use, but it's not a patch on the power it would have with the actual proper words. 
And the Angel Caprona is also a statue that's overlooking the whole city, isn't it? It's sort of the protector of the city, and they feel like if we can't remember the angel's words, we're done for. Both families are suddenly frantically working on trying to find the words to the angel of Caprona. They don't seem to have any lead at all, really. And in amid all of this, Donino gets a book from the university where his uncle Umberto works. So he opens the book, and it's called The Boy Who Saved His City. He's like, yeah, this will be right up my street. He opens it and he stays up all night reading. And one of his cousins looks in on him and thinks about maybe telling him to like put out the light and go to bed. But she thinks, oh, well, it's a present from Uncle Umberto. It must be a very learned book. And like the next mm. line in the narration is like, there was never a less learned book. <laughs> yeah. It's a trashy action adventure. One of those books, you know those books that are like where there's like a fight a page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one yeah. of them. And he's having a great time with it. It's a penny dreadful. Yeah, and it sort of fills him with ideas of, oh, maybe I could save my city. So he starts daydreaming, and then later that day, Donina goes missing, and a young Petrocchi, Angelica, also goes missing. And so both spellhouses have had a child abducted, and there's a warning written, you know, stop all spell working, or else. And so then both houses are in disarray. The war machine is rolling forward. It's definitely going to happen. They're both missing a child from their own house and feel like they can't work on any more war spells. And adventures ensue. Do you think that's enough? Um, we haven't mentioned Crestomancy. <laughs> yeah, so Crestomancy is, in the Crestomancy series, is obviously like the main character. In this one, he's a bit of a bit part. It's sort of the one where he's not really in it so much, I guess. Um, but he shows up as a, a sort of an envoy, a diplomat from Britain, because um, Crestomancy is a is a political position. Crestomancy is a civil servant. And he's sent to kind of see what's going on, but is kind of told that he can't help. But he's sort of having conferences with both houses, and <laughs> as as far as he's concerned, you know. Oh, there's this great line. He says. I'm from Britain. It's not my business to meddle in a war. You know, my business only concerns the misuse of magic. So my hands are a bit tied. And somebody from Casa Montana says, we wouldn't presume to ask you personally. And Crestomanti's like, of course ask me personally. Please ask me personally. You know, yeah. my responsibilities to my friends are so much bigger than my responsibilities to my job. Do yeah. ask me personally. I think that's lovely. I can't just go and start looking like I'm getting involved in a war. Yeah. If you say, please, can you help me out with this as a side task, then I can do it. Yeah. He's such a great character because he just sort of appears in the middle of this. Yeah. It's just this kind of amused disdain for all <laughs> of these little bickers and everything that are going on. <laughs> and he gets away with it because he's foreign, right? So he comes around Casa Montana for dinner. But it turns out he was at Casa Petrocchi for lunch. And they wouldn't allow anyone else to do that, to befriend both houses. So, I mean, I love the setup of the world that she's got. I was thinking just then that it feels quite similar in a way to His Dark Materials, mm. like the, the Philip Pullman series. It's not set in the past. It's parallel. Yeah. And when you first get there, you sort of feel like it's the past. And then there's a reveal like, oh, it's 1985, which is about when this was written. You could picture everyone in tracksuits and business suits and it would still mm. work it's yeah. just a world in which i guess yeah because i was saying this about howl's moving castle again I, I think i guess again it's got a slightly steampunk mm. thing going on 
It has a little bit, yeah. I guess what we have here as well that we sort of mentioned in the Howl episode is this feels like a really good example of the thing that Diana Wynne-Jones was talking about, of the difference between hers and Hayao Miyazaki's work, that in all of Diana Wynne-Jones stuff, like, war is a feature, but it's kind of lurking. Yeah, it lurks sort of the whole book long. I think the closest we get to it in this is that there's fighting happening just over the horizon, you know? Just over the hill. And they can hear it, but they can't see it. I had a I had a passage picked out to talk about this. So the Montanas and the Petrochis already know that something is afoot because they've been summoned to try and find the words to the angel, but it seems like nobody else knows until the reservists are called up. And then they go to school and like suddenly there's all this like gossip about it. Rumours went around the classes. Someone told Tonino that the war would be declared next Saturday, so that it would be a holy war. Someone else told Paolo that all the reserves had been issued with two left boots, so they would not be able to fight. There was no truth in these things. It was just that everybody now knew the war was coming. Mm, mm, mm. It doesn't try and hide the fact at all that it's picking up Romeo and Juliet as a basis. You know, two warring families, it's Caprona instead of Verona. We've got mm. that whole slightly mafia-esque... Well, that's kind of in Romeo and Juliet as well, right? Yeah, totally. That's what I mean, yeah. But that really adds a kind of certain menace, that sort of um, that external threat as well. Yeah, and we've got star-crossed lovers as well, which we haven't talked about. We do. Let's not say who they are. There is a romance that happens between a Montana and a Petrocchi somewhere in the background. I've got another cover illustration rant. Should we do that before we go too much more into it? Sure. So... I've put a link to the current cover illustration for this book. So it's a yellow background. There's Magicians of Caprona in big white letters on the front. And in the middle, there is a big elephant. Who knows why? There's a cougar. There's a silhouette of a cat. Seems to be some insects, a griffin, some musical notes. It's very bitty. That's a great cover. I'm t- uh, right. I was on the fence with the Howl one. Right. I'm not letting you have this. That's a lovely cover. It's brilliant. It's clearly fantasy. It pulls you in. Like if I was like a kid in a bookshop and I'd never heard of Dinewind Jones, I go, "Oh, that looks interesting. What's this about?" You'd think it was about a circus. It's not about a circus. Right. What do you want, Nina? What do you want? <laughs> there is one moment in this book where someone briefly turns themselves into an elephant. Oh, but it's such an amazing bit. Like, they're having this whole street fight. There is no elephant in this book. I mean, what else would you do? The thing is, this is so bitty. That, my problem with this is that it's really bitty. These covers, I think you can understand them after you've read the book. There's a lot of bits that sort of refer to different bits of the story. But there's, I, they're not very cohesive to me. A sort of like, here's the title, here's one big drawing, and then here's some little drawings around the side that sort of refer to bits in the story that don't really make sense together. But that is a modern design. It's a modern design from like 10 years ago. It's not that modern. This book, especially in the first few chapters, has such a visual identity. It's it's leaf green and cherry red. Those are the colours of this book. I see no leaf green or cherry red. You've got like the golden stones of the buildings and even she like tells you what kind of tiles they have on their roof. I see no reference to like the Romeo and Juliet thing and the warring families. Don't see the angel. Like, why is a griffin there? Who are these two people running across the top? I totally, totally take your point about the leaf green and cherry red. I think that's lovely. And I take your point about the city and I take your point about the war and families, right? 
Those ideas, love it. If you start to actually sketch this out, you'd start to realise that this is quite a tricky job. <laughs> I'm sure it is a tricky job. <laughs> All right, okay. We're not going to agree. I see where you're coming from, but I, I think that's a perfectly fine cover. I think it does all of the things that you wanted, was saying you wanted the cover to do. Have you seen, like, kids' books that have come out in the last few years? We're in a real golden age of illustration. Mm. I just feel like there, there are some really good illustrators working now, and I don't feel like this one has been done by an illustrator. This has been done by someone who's good with Photoshop. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what I'd love for you to do, Nina? Mm. Draw your cover design i will we can we can stick it on the instagram we can stick it on all of the socials <laughs> listeners if you want to join in draw <laughs> yeah. your own diana win jones paperback we will share them on the social media should we move on for now <laughs> okay here's the street fight the concourse crowded down the via san angelo and swept around the corner into the corso with the cathedral at their backs People out shopping hastily gave them room, but old Niccolo was too angry to use the pavement like a mere pedestrian. He led the family into the middle of the road, and they marched there like a vengeful army, forcing cars and carriages to draw into the curbs, with old Niccolo stepping proudly at their head. It was hard to believe that a fat old man with a baby's face could look so warlike. The corso bends slightly around the Archbishop's Palace, then it runs straight again by the shops past the columns of the art gallery on one side and the great gilded doors of the arsenal on the other. They swung around the bend. There, approaching from the opposite direction, was another similar crowd also walking in the road. The Petrocchis were on the march too. Extraordinary, muttered Uncle Umberto. Perfect, spat old Niccolo. The two families advanced on one another. There was utter silence then, except for the cloppering of feet. Every ordinary citizen, as soon as they saw the entire Casa Montana advancing on the entire Casa Petrocchi, made haste to get off the street. People knocked on the doors of perfect strangers and were led in without question. <laughs> the manager of Grossi's, the biggest shop in Caprona, threw open his plate glass doors and sent his assistants out to fetch everybody inside, after which he clapped the doors shut and locked a steel grill down in front of them. From between the bars, white faces stared out at the oncoming spellmakers, and the troop of reservists, newly called up and sloppily marching in crumpled new uniforms, were horrified to find themselves caught between the two parties. They broke and ran, as one crumpled reservist, and sought frantic shelter in the arsenal. The great gilt doors clanged shut on them just as old Nicola halted, face to face with Guido Petrocchi. Shall I stop there? That setup's brilliant, and then the fight itself is amazing but you should read it for yourselves but yeah the other thing that that was making us think that excerpt is how frustrated i get sometimes with books where i can't figure out where things are placed in relation Mm. to each other it's either if it's too vague or too specific that awful thing of you've got your party walking along by the side of a river for miles and it's been like a chapter and a half of description on this and then it'll just casually say such and such looked over to his left towards the river and I'm like ah man it was on the right and now I've got a which means the mountains are over there and the cities behind them and and I try and like stop myself this book sits just in the sweet spot Mm -hmm. where it's like I can so picture this city I know where everything is I know where the bridge is I know where the cathedral is in relation to the bridge and the two houses and like it's completely consistent the sense of place in this is amazing like it gives you enough where it's like you know this town it's one of my comfort reads I come back to Mm. it 
And I think it's because I feel so comfortable in Caprona. I, I like the interior scenes in Casa Montana a lot. Like, should we talk about the pasta scene? Don't mess with the magic pasta. Give us the story. Aunt Gina is always in the kitchen and Benvenuto is always stealing her steaks and she's always threatening to have hysterics about it. Benvenuto, yeah, he takes them up on the roof, doesn't he? And he's, yeah. She's like, Tonino, your cat has nicked my steaks. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. He's good at stealing <laughs> steaks. <laughs> Benvenuto is such a strong character. We'll have to talk about him in a minute. He's in the great tradition of Diana Wynne-Jones cat characters, of which she has many. Um, but so the kids have all been called in from whatever they're doing to come and sit down to dinner, and they've had pasta. And then the adults say, well, we all have to go and work in the scriptorium. Kids, do the washing up. And there's like eight of them. They're like, oh, no, I don't want to. And the oldest one is like, oh, I haven't got time. I've got homework to do. I'm trying to get into university. And the second oldest cousin goes, oh, you go and do your studying. You know, I'll, I'll take over here. And she's like, what? And as soon as I read that, I was a bit suspicious of this character. Like, why are you letting someone else off the washing up? What are you going to do? They're never supposed to misuse spells. Spells are not for small, everyday things. They're for grand things. They're for mm. protecting the city. It turns out that this young cousin has written a washing up song to the tune of the Angel of Caprona so that they don't have to manually do the washing up. So they all carry the washing up through to the kitchen, put it all on the floor and start singing this song. Angel, clean our knives and dishes, clean our spoons and salad bowls, wash our saucepans, hear our wishes, angel, make our forks quite clean. (laughs) Doesn't even rhyme. No. (laughs) (laughs) And slowly the pasta starts wiggling off the plates and into the slops pail, as does the tomatoey pasta grease. It It does kind of work. And then the adults burst in and tell them off for misusing the magic. And this is why we're losing our virtue. You know, you're putting the saintly, magical tune of the Angel of Caprona to work for your laziness. This is really, really bad. There's a big telling off. And then the magic never really stops. The pasta grease just continues to spread itself slowly and evenly all over the kitchen for the rest of the book. (laughs) I know it's never resolved. It's the one thing in the book that's never resolved. (laughs) (laughs) They just can't use the kitchen anymore. They start going and cooking in another room. (laughs) So that's why you shouldn't misuse the pasta magic in this book. It's really good. I don't know where she gets those ideas from. Yeah. Should we talk about Benvenuto? I love Benvenuto. Yeah. Jumping in early on my who's your favourite character segment is Benvenuto for me. Yeah. Benvenuto is just all things cat. <laughs> he's wonderful. I mean, he's just exactly what you'd expect the top <laughs> cat of an important household to be. Ev- everyone defers and bows to Benvenuto. If you are a guest at the Casa Montana, the person to impress is Benvenuto. Everybody first pays their respects to Benvenuto. There's a member of the family gets engaged during the book and her fiancé comes round. And no one really knows anything about him. Yeah, and we're all like, "Mm, do we trust him? And the first thing he does is he goes and pays his respects to Benvenuto. Yeah. And says hello to him. And Benvenuto allows himself to be stroked. And so they're like, all right, he's okay. And same thing, when Crestamante shows up, the first thing he does is he greets Benvenuto. I love the bit as well when it's like, it casually mentions that basically 80% of the other cats in the house are Benvenuto's kids. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's fathered all of them. (laughs) (laughs) The way Benvenuto's dialogue is inserted into this book is very interesting. 
So he doesn't actually get dialogue, but you get in the narration what he says. So I'll read you a little bit here. Um, so Donino's having a whole, you know, existential crisis about being stupid. It's really near the beginning, and Benvenuto's come out to, like, talk him down and bring him home. But I'm so stupid, Tonino began. Benvenuto interrupted that he had heard Tonino chattering with those kittens yesterday, and he had thought that Benvenuto was a good deal cleverer than they were, and before Tonino went and objected that those were only kittens, wasn't Tonino only a kitten himself? Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, you get it reported through Tonino, don't you? He's almost the narrator sometimes. Yeah. Because he doesn't actually say words, and it sort of like conveys that like ideas and pictures arrive in Tonino's head. When we say Tonino can talk to cats, it's not verbal communication. It's telepathy, isn't it? Yeah, sort of. No, that's interesting. Benvenuto as narrator. Yeah. He's just a proper little player, Benvenuto, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crestomancy is allowed to go over to Casa Petrocchi and also Benvenuto. Yeah. Nobody else is allowed to cross those boundaries but Crestomancy, yeah. the stranger from the British Envoy. Benvenuto is probably the dad of most of the Petrucci's cats as well. He goes over there and yowls on their roof and, like, woos their white lady cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's head cat over there, Vittoria, the white cat. So we have two star-crossed romances. That's a nice touch as well. I've not thought about that. Isn't that lovely? Because, like, what you'd expect is that the Petrucci's also have a head cat and that there's a war going on there as well. Mm. But it's great that it isn't, because it's just that thing of, like, cats transcend these silly human problems, you know? (laughs) Who's your favourite character, then? Aunt Gina. Nice. The one who's always threatening to have hysterics. Proper backstep mother, isn't she? Like, yous get in now! It's way past (laughs) your tea time! When they start having to work on the war spells, what happens is the senior members of the household are writing new war spells, and then all the children are just copying them out. And so the children are really in demand because they're sort of a bit of a workforce for the house. You've got adults in charge of different parts of the household, and then they're sort of bickering over, like, who can have the kids? Oh, we need them in the scriptorium, like, writing out spells. Well, I need to send them to the butcher for steak! She wanted to send the ones that are old enough to copy out the spells, but they have to stay and copy out the spells. So she ends up sending Donino, and she doesn't trust Donino enough to get ripped off by the butcher. So she writes him a note from Gina Montana and, you know, give them good steak or else. And the butcher says, oh, it's probably the last good steak, you know, if this war is going to happen, this is the last good stuff you'll have. And then Benvenuto eats it on the roof. And she's the one in the street fight that asks for one-on-one combat and she wants to do it as well. Like, she's well up for it. She's fierce, isn't she? Fierce protector of her own. She's so emotionally manipulative. And she is, like, she's kind of status high enough where she can write a note to the butcher of, like, my name is good for the best state you've got. But she's so low status as well because any time she gets upset at anything, she's like, why are you picking on me? And you're like, oh, (laughs) shut up, Gina, man. Tell you who else we should talk about. We should talk about Rinaldo. Rinaldo, toxic masculinity, Montana. <laughs> we have Rinaldo, who, if we're drawing parallels to Romeo and Juliet, is Tybalt, isn't he? He's the yes. sort of suave kind of like going and getting all the girls, like strutting, yeah. pouting. He's one of Donino's cousins. Oh, he falls in love with this English girl and then decides to be sort of 
tragic and romantic, so he starts wearing all black with just, like, one red scarf. He's not dissimilar to Howl, is he? He's way more toxic, and it, it's like Howl on steroids. That is exactly what he's like. He's not a slither-outer. He's, like, hit everything straight on, but he's got all <laughs> of the same, like, hyper-pretension. Oh, and he's so hostile to anybody who enters the casa. yeah. When his cousin brings home her fiancé, he's immediately suspicious and, you know, sort of, like, gearing himself up up for a fight to the point where everybody's, like, calm down, Ronaldo. Yeah, they're like, oh, pack it in, man, Ronaldo. Like, I think it's when Benvenuto goes and lets himself be stroked. They're like, see, shut up, man. Get off the table. Yeah. (laughs) Put your biceps away. Settle down. Right at the beginning of the war, he gets himself in some stupid street brawl and has to lie in bed for a few days. And, like, it's, I think it's Aunt Gina who um, tells him <laughs> off for this. She's like, you've completely incapacitated yourself. Where was the honour in that? Now you're useless. You just have to lie in bed. And he proper milks it as well. He's like, I'm injured. I've been yeah. injured defending the honour of the house. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to talk about Black Crestomancy. Shall we do that? Yeah, when I when I was reading this one, when when Crestomancy appears, and he only appears quite briefly, I pictured yeah. him as black. He's not on the cover of this one, but when I was little, it was the first book of this series that I read, and Crestomancy is on the cover of that, and is a, a white man in this gorgeous flowing coat. Yeah, I suppose it took me by surprise because I already had this image of that character when I was little, mm. as a very posh, sort of well-to-do, slightly effeminate white man. The description of how he's set up in this book... He totally sounds black. Shall I read it to you? Yeah. He was wearing an exceedingly expensive coat with a fur collar and a tweed travelling cap with daft ear flaps. He raised his eyes accusingly to the strangers. He met eyes even darker than his own, which seemed to spill brilliance over the rest of the man's smooth, dark face. They gave Donino a jolt... Worse than the time the horses turned back to cardboard. He knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was looking at a powerful enchanter. Yeah, that does definitely sound like a black character. The thing about Diana Wynne-Jones is she's one of these white writers who always tells you really clearly if she's writing someone who's not white. Right, okay. She will say, a black boy or an Asian boy. What we have here is that thing, isn't it, where dark is taken to mean black hair... Crestomancy is described as having curly black hair, which could be a black man, and tall and impeccably turned out and with smooth, dark skin. I don't really think it matters if Diana Wynne-Jones imagined him as black. I mean, I guess why I brought it up to you is that it was a surprise and it was a nice Mm. surprise. It's like that totally works. It really works in this one because I think most people in Caprona are white, the way they're described. And Mm. I think... Crestomancy is playing off his Britishness, right? His foreignness. It's a bit like how Hercule Poirot gets away with stuff because he's Belgian in Agatha Christie. Mm, mm. Plays up the foreign thing and then actually turns it to his advantage. And I feel like Crestomancy is doing the same thing here. He's sort of playing up the, oh, I'm not from here. I can't meddle too much. I'm allowed to go to the Montanas and the Petrockies because I'm from completely outside of all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does feel like it really works. I mean, I'd be interested to ask black readers about it because we're both white. If you were going to televise this, absolutely cast a black man as Crestomancy. Who is Magicians of Caprona for, Matt? I think eight or nine up. Very similar to Howl. I would say the only thing, it did feel quite dense at the beginning. And I think Mm -hmm. you might lose a lot of younger readers Yes. In that initial setup. It's really fast paced after that. It's worth sticking through. 
but it's a it's a little bit expositiony at the beginning. I really like the beginning because I find all that really cozy. But I agree, it's not the most gripping start. What I would do is I would read the first three or so chapters aloud to someone, then give them a book and let them carry on by themselves. I think they might need just a little bit of hand holding at the beginning, but then they'll be off. Yeah. We've already said this, but fans of Harry Potter, I think, will probably love Crestomancy. Yeah, it was introduced to me as an alternative to Harry Potter. My first introduction to Diana Wynne-Jones was with Charmed Life, and it was when I was in hospital with appendicitis, when I was eight or nine. And family friend, Chaz Brenchley, who's a fantasy author, sent me Charmed Life with a note that said, in his humble opinion, that Diana Wynne-Jones far surpassed... <laughs> J.K. Rowling as a kid's fantasy author. So yeah, so that was my introduction. And I think it's totally, totally true. Yeah, I don't disagree. <laughs> a bit wackier, a bit weirder. Sort of far less normative as well, does... Yeah, definitely. Eight or nine, I think, is a good age for to start the Crestomancy books. Like I said, this one you might need to do a bit of hand-holding at the beginning, but I think it really pays off. I can also imagine really enjoying this book in sort of late teens... Yes, especially if you're a Shakespeare nerd. Yeah. I think people who yeah, enjoy yeah. Shakespeare will really like this and will really like the things that she's changed and the things that she hasn't. Yeah. It's fun to look out for those. I'm not going to tell you all of them because it would be very spoilery. But if you know the story of Romeo and Juliet, this is very fun. So, eight, to ni- eight and nine up, Harry Potter fans, Shakespeare fans, fantasy fans, people who are bedridden for a week... Yes, <laughs> if you're having your appendix out, then people with appendixes can enjoy this too. So, that was episode 19 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now, as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at trunchbullpod and even the Trunchbull on Instagram. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchbull. Trunchbull.